Hey! Welcome back to Tell It Anyway, a podcast where we tell stories until we get them right. This week on the podcast, we have Sarah Kleinman, who lives in the Boston area. She is a midwife. She delivers babies unto the world. Hi, Sarah. Hi. I'm super excited to be here. Yay! We also have Alan Zibel, and Alan Zibel spent 19 years as a print journalist, which is heroic. Uh, He... uh, has a new job in communications at a housing nonprofit, and his third job is as the number one fan of this podcast. Woohoo! Can I just Maybe. say 19 years, Alan? That seems like a. I know, I'm old. Like, that seems like a long time to do something. It really does. As a young man. As a now old man, yeah. I will confirm that journalism does suck the youth from your bones it, at an alarming pace. It does. <laughs> it does. So this week we are talking about, speaking of things that suck the life from your bones, we are talking about shock. I have in the past almost been struck by lightning. And so I definitely know a certain kind of shock. Uh, I've been in a car accident. I've known a certain kind of shock. There's a lot of different kinds of shock in this world. So I guess we're going to see what we're going to get. This is my home, I don't care, I don't need your city, I don't need your flair. This is my home, not going anywhere. This is my home, boss beware. This is my home, this is I my have home. talked in the past on this podcast about how Matt and I live in a little itty bitty paradise in Los Angeles in Hollywood, California. And it's a little house. It's a one bedroom. It has little vines that almost entirely cover the front of the house like it's a hobbit hole. We have a little yard with a lot of different fruit trees. It's a lovely place to live. So lovely, in fact, that we often forget that we're still living in an urban neighborhood in Hollywood that not even 10 years ago used to be considered if when we first moved to LA and lived on the west side, we were like, oh, you don't go to Hollywood. You know, <laughs> it's just a little ridiculous. No, it was um, sketchy. It was, I, I remember visiting Hollywood in the early 2000s. It was sketchy. So it certainly is a paradise in a bubble outside of which things occasionally happen. And we like to call it, we have a word for it, we call it block shock. Everything seems nice and wonderful, and then something shocking happens on the block, and you're like, well, I guess we don't live in a bubble. <laughs> let's let's freak right. out and get paranoid. So this all starts, oddly enough, on the first weekend after Matt and I had done our very first Tell It Anyway podcast. We'd done the podcast on a Friday. We were so excited. It was me, Matt, and Igor did the show. We are so excited. And we drove home, and we talked all about it and how great it was, and... Then somehow, I guess because I was editing the podcast and Matt was helping out with it, we did not leave the house that Saturday. (laughs) Just didn't leave the house. It happens. Probably less so when you have kids. (laughs) We get to Sunday and Matt is going to go pick up food or maybe Matt had picked up food. I don't know what you were going out for on Sunday. And I start settling down into my, oh, Matt's gone. I'm going to relax now (laughs) in the way that all wives do with their husbands and all husbands do with their wives. And not like 30 seconds before Matt comes bursting back in the door and says, someone's stolen our car. What? Yeah. His car, which used to be my car, which used to be my mom's car, this beautiful silver Mustang is apparently missing. We don't have a garage. No, we don't have a garage. It was out on the street. And it's a 2001 Mustang. So like if it hasn't been stolen by now, like why would anyone steal it? But things happen on our block. 
So the first thing that ever happened to not us, but one of our neighbors was our neighbor was taking a shower and her shower window happens to be pretty high up, but accessible from our little courtyard area, like big apartment building facing the front garage area and then our house. And our neighbor came to our door one day back in the early 04s in a robe, shivering and totally freaked out. Because some guy had popped his head up in her shower window and said, hello, hello. Oh, God. Wow. Yeah. Like, so that, a, like a not a like like construction not someone person, sh- like some not random someone person. she knew at oh, all. Oh, God. There's never like super crime on our block, but there's crime of opportunity. If you leave all your laundry in the car because you just came back from the Michael Jackson trial and you don't want to take the laundry out of the car <laughs> and you may have left your door unlocked, not visibly, but it's still unlocked, your laundry will not be there. Matt's had his laundry stolen out of the dryer. We, we've occasionally, our neighbor one came time n- knocked on our door and was like, there are people having sex in the laundry room. <laughs> and I was like, what do you want me to do about it? You want me to go knock on the door and be like, can you finish up? I have to do laundry. Um, Wait, and, can I ask a yes. question? Yeah. Because I've had... Yeah, we do. We share laundry like animals. Wait, I, should I understand why someone was at the Michael Jackson trial? Yes. I am a journalist. Oh, you were covering it. I was covering it. I was okay. not a super fan. I was covering the Michael Jackson trial and it was in Santa Maria, California, which is a three-hour drive up from LA. And so I would go up there on a Monday or a Sunday night, do the trial for five days and then drive home. And of course, I was always transporting a ton of baggage and laundry. So I left some of it in the car one time and it got stolen and what are you going to do so one of the biggest things that ever happened was one time I was coming back from a a movie with a friend of mine and she's from the west side specifically Brentwood which is a little more of a hoity-toity neighborhood and we turn the corner to go down our long driveway and there's a woman hunched in our driveway crouched over mostly naked taking a (laughs) bath in our driveway with our our hose that's right in the driveway. Wow. Like a homeless person? Yeah, and she was clearly mentally troubled and (laughs) she was pleasuring herself. With In your driveway? The hose in my driveway. My poor friend was just like, didn't know what to do. And so I said to the woman, you have to go now. (laughs) And she looked up at me with these, I mean, it's terribly sad. She looked up at me with these, non-comp she was beautiful like she probably was a model in the 80s and she looked up at me with these eyes and she said i do i said yeah you have to go now and so she put the hose down and she walked away totally naked breasts hanging out i know Uh and what i had meant to do was go inside and call the police and help her out and then, you forgot? <laughs> no, no. My friend, I grabbed my friend and ushered her down the driveway. And then I went out to go look for the lady and I could not find her. That's the sort of level of stuff that happens in my neighborhood. This is all to say that things happen on our block. And if you... That are shocking. That are shocking. shocking. And shocking so if things. Matt runs in and says, my car is missing, I would believe him. So we do what you normally do when your car is missing. You think, "Uh uh-oh, I must have parked it in front of someone's driveway. Because I've had that that happen to me. I came home one night late at night after hanging out with a bunch of friends, and I accidentally parked in front of someone's driveway by just a little bit, but they couldn't get out because it was a narrow driveway, and they tow your car. So I'd had the experience, and I knew that my job was to go and call the tow place and be like, is my car there? Did my car end up there? And the nice people at the other end of 311, they check all the places and they say, I'm sorry to inform you, but your car has not been towed, which means it's been stolen. 
Oh, wow. And I'm like freaking out because I'm like, this car has huge emotional history. It was my mom's car. What are we going to do without a second car? I'm all the way down the road. So we put on our shoes and we walk over to the police department, which is just three blocks away. And I'm in shock. Didn't want to leave the dog at home. So we took the dog with us. We walk into our police station, which is in the heart of Hollywood. And we sit down because it's pretty busy. There's these two little Japanese girls with a lost passport issue. There's some indeterminately strange lady over in a corner just muttering to herself really angry. (laughs) And then there's a guy that we end up sitting next to who is Definitely there handing out crazy conspiracy theory pamphlets. And so I'm just holding my little Pomeranian very close to me, trying not to talk to anybody and just steaming about the car. We wait there forever. And like the guy next to us keeps trying to talk to us. And Matt, you know, is a magnet for people who want him to give them his attention. And In so what like, way? I didn't know this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Matt is a magnet because he has a kind face. <laughs> <laughs> is that proven? And Why is I just have to say face. the whole time Matt's tongue is just out. <laughs> um, when Matt thinks, his tongue goes out. So the, his grandfather did it too. And Michael Jordan. And Michael My dad Jordan. does that actually too. Where whenever he ties a shoe, his own or someone else's, he bites his tongue on one side. It's a family <laughs> thing. Anyway, so yes, this guy is asking Matt questions like, "You want to read my pamphlet?" I gotta tell you about the end of the world. It's the end of the world. Like, it was pure crazy. And then the super crazy, angry lady next to him would be like, What kind of dog is that? And I didn't wanna give any information. I was like, It's a dog. It was just a bad scene. And like if you uh, disclosed it was a Pomeranian, it would no, I, I know. Like then it would be more identifiable. And then she would ask questions like, "What kind of car was stolen?" And in my like semi-shocked, paranoid state, I was like, "I'm not telling you anything." But it's I didn't really, want to be mean. I have to say, I just very quickly, yeah. I, my my um, apartment was robbed a few years ago. Not the one that I'm currently living in, but the one I lived in prior to this. And it does a number on you. You're paranoid forever. You You're know, so if anything, absolutely. And it just feels like so like you're at the mercy of the universe. Yeah. Like anything can be taken. Yeah. And that's yeah, why it's... I had the husband and the dog. And I was like, not talking to anyone. Yeah. So finally, we get up to the the cops and they're very nice. They're good cops. And they're like, okay, so what happened? Uh, we think our car was stolen. Did you call the tow people? Yeah, we called the tow people. Uh, do you feel like you're in immediate peril? Like, <laughs> no. Okay, we're too busy to take your statement. Can you come back in an hour? No. Yeah. And I was like, oh, Lord. And look, when the cops say they're busy, it's not because they're having Sunday tea. Like, they're busy. Right. So Matt has been silent this whole time. And it's clear that, I mean, his tongue is out. Like, it's clear that he's thinking about something and, like, working something over in his head. And so we walk out the cop station and I'm like even more miserable because now we've walked all the way to the cop station and back and we're gonna have to come back again and I'm walking like kind of brisk walk 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 and Matt starts walking slower and slower and slower oh no he says did we drive home together on Friday night (laughs) and I said yeah he's like because I drove to your office on Friday night and if we drove home together that means the car is still there. <laughs> and so I just looked at him and I was still like not ready to believe that there could be a good option. Yeah. I was like, no, it's been stolen. So it turns out he doesn't park at my office. He parks at a park. And so this car has now been there for 48 hours plus. And I'm like, well, the car's not there. It's been towed. He's like, no, if it had been towed, it would have been at the tow place. And so... 
I was like, I can't do it. You have to go. Because I, I don't think I could have driven. I was still so much in shock about this stolen car. He drives to the, the place in my Jeep and he calls me and he says, we are the luckiest sons of bitches on the planet. Because there was the silver Mustang in a park. Aww. Just sitting there. No tickets. No boot. Wow. No nothing. I've been sitting there for 48 plus hours. And I, we hadn't lost our car. So it was that amazing. That is amazing. It was like, but the joke was we pieced it together like a Sherlock episode. Because that's how stupid and self-absorbed we are. <laughs> we had to recreate the weekend step by step to be sure that if we really came to the conclusion that the car wasn't lost, it wouldn't be that the car was really stolen, it wouldn't be this huge disappointment. So that's the life we're living literally in the bubble in both physical and metaphysical reality. We are just completely bubbled up to the point where we forgot that we left a car in a park. But it's almost like right. you gave yourself, you created a bad situation or a scary situation or a shocking situation to then be given this gift yes. of relief. Yes. I don't know. Maybe that's okay. Yeah, we've had enough bad things happen on this block that it would not have shocked me at all. But in the end, it really was like waking up and thinking it's Monday, but it's really a Saturday. Like we were yeah. just like, given our lives yeah. back. Yeah. Given your I'm, lives I'm still back. shocked. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit I know, I know. We overly dramatize these things. I love often. it. I would have felt the same way. Creative, creative people have been known to dramatize. I'm really shocked that Matt was able to kind of skirt by this without a marriage kind of incident. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've gotten in trouble for far, far less severe things than, than, than losing our car when they drove away. From yeah, it was a, it was a mutually, it was a mutually culpable. I guess event. you both should have remembered. Yeah. That. But the bliss, the, the pure bliss. bliss and elation of creating this podcast yep. just kind of carried you away. It did help that it was Matt that pieced it together. I had yeah. already lost the car and was in the mental process of buying another one. Right. You know, like, just imagine what would have happened if we had then gone and filed a false police report. There was a universe if that cop had been less busy where we would have gone all the trouble of filing a false police report only to find out that it had been parked in a park. So that's our story. We live in a fantasy land. And uh, we're much better now about remembering the car. And none of us are washing up with dish soap in the driveway yet. So, And I still think about that lady. I still think about her. And I think I did not help that lady. I did not help her. But like, I like to think that if it had been just me and not my friend from Brentwood also, that I would have handled it differently. Yeah. That I was just like, in any given situation, my mind roves to whom to protect and in that yeah. instance, it was, I need to protect my friend. But if my friend hadn't been there, I probably would have been like, I need to help this lady. So it's always just like a roving canon of who needs the immediate assistance. But um, also, what would you have done? Like, if you called yeah. the police, you mean? You would have or followed her and then said, come into my home for clothing? Right. Or like, what I, would you have done? I think what I would have done is gone and gotten her a towel from my house and just given it away. Matt and I are the people who once went out and, like, had a whole conversation for 45 minutes about whether we should give a homeless man a blanket and some money and whether he would find that demeaning on a cold winter's night. So we are white privileged assholes of the <laughs> highest variety because anyone else in the right and we and we didn't want the guy to know where we live because sometimes there's just homeless people and sometimes there's like seriously mentally unstable homeless people and I will say that I've gotten pretty good telling the difference but you never know like there were once these two guys living in the bushes across the street from us who were like serious proselytizing end of the world people 
And they used to just scream at the top of their lungs about the end of days and black people and like just horrible, horrible stuff. And so you never really know. And so I've, again, block shock. I have definitely built up some caution. We ended up walking around the block, zigzagging to throw him off, give him blankets and money and run away so that he couldn't track us. I mean, what (laughs) assholes. But I will say that of all the things that have ever happened on our block, none was more shocking than the time I caught a guy masturbating in our actual office. There where you are now? In my home office. What? Yeah. He got into your home? He lived there at my home. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> this is my home. This is my home. 30 alligators and a pack of wolves. A six pack and a pack of menthols. I'll stand on my island cold and burn mosquito banning all alone. Because this is my home. This is my so home. I was thinking about kind of this new phase of my career and was thinking back to when I started my career as a journalist. And the first thing I did right out of college was I had an internship at um, a website, boston.com, which is the Boston Globe's website. And I didn't really like it. I was doing like really old school HTML coding when you have to do that by hand. I was like, this internet thing, it's not going anywhere. No, I'm, <laughs> I knew the internet thing was going. You just so didn't want to build the road. I didn't want to build the road. So I got an internship at a suburban newspaper in Massachusetts near where we grew up. Uh, the paper was in Framingham. We grew up in, in a town called Wellesley nearby. And I was brought in for what they called a tryout. Mm-hmm. Um, which was basically like five, five days of work where you would see whether you got this internship. Um, I don't know whether anybody do, does this anymore, but it's like you're, you're... Yeah, they just make you do it for a year. <laughs> this was a tryout, and like you, could, you would either succeed or fail. They brought me up for the tryout, and I remember one of the first things I had to do in my tryout was, this is sort of the classic cub reporter thing. A poor woman got killed in a car crash, and kind of the standard local newspaper thing to do is you have to go find the family and interview the family and get some color, as we call it, or get some bring the story to life. Like, Done it, hate it. Oh, God. Yes. So I mean, I remember driving down there. I can't remember whether I called the family to tell them whether I was coming or whether I just showed up. I probably just showed up. I remember like like down down to this (laughs) poor family's house. And the woman was three years older than me, like, you know, who died in a car crash. And I uh, and I um, I was like on the verge of like just driving home and like not showing up um, the next day. Um, but I did it and I brought back the story and got, you know, what we needed to do. And I got the internship and I asked the editor, the editor was this gruff man named Russ Lodi. Of course. What a great newspaper man name. Russ. R-U-S. Just one S. Um, Two S's would be too many letters. No, it's Rustin or Rustin, Rustin F. Lodi. Well, I'm all, I'm all wrapped up in HIPAA. That doesn't (laughs) exist for radio. This is journalism. You can say okay. what happened. Okay. 
Well, it's not libelous. I'm not libeling Russ Lodi. Right, he's, right. He's, you're right. He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know libel. If I if I were to say something intentionally defamatory or untrue, then I wouldn't say his name. But he's a good guy. I like him. Uh, Russ Lodi is a okay. And he came, Russ, <laughs> he, he gave me my start. Without Russ Lodi, I'd be nobody. So Russ gave me this internship, and I remember asking him at one point, like, so how long does this last? And, you know, because I was getting paid eight bucks an hour with no health benefits, and he was, it was an internship. He was like, well, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, we can do this for a year. Hmm. <laughs> we like, can legally, like they, as an organization, can do this can, for a year. We can do this legally for a year right. without violating the law. Like, this is what labor law permits us to do. <laughs> like, we do it, we pay and you nothing. We know it. We, yeah, you know, we've researched this. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I didn't care, right? It's your first job out of college. And yeah, so I was working for the Middlesex News, and I got transferred to the Franklin, Massachusetts Bureau, which was even farther away. I was determined not to live at home, and I was paying like, 300 bucks a month to live in a room in Somerville, Massachusetts. It was very, very unglamorous. Yeah. I remember driving to drive to the police station. I had hit like three or four police stations to like take down the cop log mm-hmm. to write, you know, what? to like. What does that yeah, mean? So you had to fit. So this is really before like internet or email got to be. I mean, it existed, but it wasn't universal, right? The police station certainly didn't have websites or anything. So you had to like write down any to see if any crime fun, in the area. Or yeah, something. You got a jumper on the 16th floor of the West Side building and the pavilion of the thing of the thing. Yeah, I mean, most of these we wouldn't really pursue. We would just write up for briefs. Like stuff that was big would come over the scanner. Right. Something big that someone would hear that we had people listening to the scanner. So um, one day, one day, one day, I was at work and I got called out to cover. Um, I presume this came over the scanner mm-hmm. to cover a fire, and there was a fire at a junior college in Franklin, Massachusetts, called Dean College. Mm-hmm. It's probably like a two-year school, like a community college, I think. And there was a big, big, big fire, like a huge fire. A whole dorm was burning down. And, you know, we, since we were, we had a local office, we were right there. We were at, we were like, we had like four reporters just kind of milling around around like while this giant dorm was burning to the ground. And like TV state crews were coming out from Boston. There was like people from the globe. Everybody was milling around. It was like a big scene, at least bigger like than I had experienced. Black smoke, fire trucks, everything. And so we were there all, we were there for hours, just kind of like interviewing people, trying to figure out what was happening. And I'll never forget this. Like we were trying to interview the kids, like trying to get some quotes from kids whose dorm it was. And I started to, um, you know, I asked this kid who was like three years younger than me or whatever, like, so like, what happened? Or how do you feel? Or, you know, something like that. This kid looked at me, paused for a second and spat in my face. (gasps) (laughs) Spat in my face. And, And so this was a shock. Like, I don't like what did he not understand like we weren't there to you know like we, we didn't set the dorm on fire we were this was news and we were reporting on it like it you know it, what we Alan, weren't I'm like gonna, i'm gonna let you in on a little secret yeah people don't like the media i know but i know i still don't get why i mean we we were like you know we we were trying to just document what happened like i mean i, I we weren't this wasn't like 
we weren't really violating they felt violated by right, us right, right. you think it was they were spitting in your face because you were the media yes you think it was a reaction to that oh definitely it definitely was it just it stuck with me all this time it, but to me it kind of encapsulates like the weird thing about being a journalist like you're like in some stories that you do you're doing like a real service to society society and some things are just kind of like horrible and voyeuristic did I like- the i want to know if the spit and this is coming from a person who i am exposed to bodily fluids of all kinds on a daily right. basis and there's very little that grosses me out but i'm wondering if any got in your actual mouth oh, i don't remember that i probably you don't would- was it like a big thing or like a spray i think it was more of a spray other than like a loogie. It was like it was less the grossness of it and more like the oh my Shock. god. It was like that just happened. Did it change how you felt? I mean, you then went on to like 18 more years in journalism, so you certainly persevered, right? Yes. It, it didn't I don't think it was it was it was definitely like an eye opener in terms of like not everyone likes us. Mm-hmm. And like it definitely was the you know, the first of many of these kind of death and tragedy stories that I did before I realized like I actually really don't like death and tragedy stories and don't ever want to do them anymore yeah I I mean I'm right there with you like my example I've had a lot of examples in doing network television journalism where people are are like stop taking advantage of us and go on home because they're just legitimately tired of satellite trucks parked on their cul-de-sac pumping carbon monoxide into their houses. Like we're a very invasive species as a, as a, as journalists and in mass, you know, I was at the courthouse when Renona Ryder got her arm broken by the media. I was like off to the side, but there was, she was getting so jostled that she just like snapped like a twig. I I totally understand that. I think the, my, thing I hated to do the most was do uh, what we called MOS at the gas station, which right, is go right. ask people's opinion about the price of gas every single so many, week during the I've done right. that so many times. During yeah. What's the, MOS? Uh, Man on the well, street. I would have to approach people. And you know when people feel really vulnerable? When they're <laughs> at the pump with their wallet out and their car <laughs> open. And they, you have to like walk up to them like you're, like they're a wild lion. Hello, uh, I'm standing at a safe distance. My name is Jenny. I work for CBS <laughs> News. Uh, and hold your arms out like, I, I'm not here to harm you or take your money or your car. Would you like to talk to us about the price of gas? Yeah, okay. And then the other thing I used to do all the time that huh. made me hate MOS even more is they always used to send us to Larchmont village which is a really nice part of town just a little ways down from this office and i always used to accidentally interview famous people who were just (laughs) out shopping so i would be like hello what is your name (laughs) jason oh would you mind telling me your last name jason seahorn and like i would do a whole interview about whatever the stupid story was the day and only later realized that he was like a quarterback for the jets at one point and was married to angie Harmon. and i felt so and this happened to me all the time so probably mos was one of the reasons i absolutely got out of the industry huh yeah it's, you did yeah. the same thing as yeah. alan like were you, yeah, you were i was a journalist. tv yeah. and he was in print but it's all the same thing it's all just getting stuff to fill the paper and only rarely are you doing amazing 
reporting you, or something? You do. You, you often do get to do amazing reporting, but you do have to feed the beast. And sometimes it's just, how do you feel about the price of gas? You're as happy as the local news. He knows one way to shed. Those blues don't need a rubber nose or some giant shoes. Have a smoke. Tell a joke. Well, my shock story that I have for you guys today has to do with my parents. It starts when I was like eight or nine years old, and my family used to go to this place in New York, very, very, very Western New York called Chautauqua. When I was a kid, it was this institution for arts and music, and there was theater and kids, and you really couldn't drive through it, but like tons of freedom and beaches and summer camps and things like that. And it was small. It was like three miles around. It was teeny. Hmm. And... My mom and my sister and I used to go for the whole summer because my mom was a teacher at the time. And my dad would come up on the weekends. It was like two hours from Cleveland where I grew up. Hmm. And I distinctly remember one particular day, again, when I was like eight or nine years old, of being outside in our front yard, which was mostly just like bikes and gravel, having a lemonade stand. And it was a really windy day. And I remember having like the pitcher and the Dixie cups and the little pieces of paper that had and the napkins and things like that. I don't know why you need napkins for lemonade, but Was, I had uh, the, uh, that day I had few customers, mm-hmm. very few. But in general, I'd say the lemonade stand did well. Okay. In Chautauqua, New York. It was a profitable was, enterprise. It was profitable enough, I and, would say. And also it felt like an independent thing. I remember like I was, it was like a one man show. Okay. I was like, this is my table. Anybody that comes by, I've got the monopoly on lemonades. You were a lemonadepreneur. I was. Um, and no one spit on you or the lemonade. That day, no. Good. So anyway, I remember it was like really windy and I was picking up rocks from the ground. Like I have a vivid image of picking up rocks from the ground and putting them on like the napkins and the Dixie cups and making sure things didn't fly away. And I remember my dad was there. It was a weekend. And my dad, I heard his voice from inside saying, Sarah, come in. We want to talk to you. And I was like, just dismissed him kind of. and was like, hold on. I'm the lemonade stand. I've got the rocks and I need to get, hold on. I'm, I'm you know, being a preneur. Exactly. This was like so important, my job for the day. And then his voice got very stern. And he was like, no, now we need to see you now inside. Mm-hmm. And there was just something very rattling about his voice in that moment. And so I just stopped what I was doing and I came inside because I could tell it was serious. Mm-hmm. And when I went in, my sister was there who was like eight years older than me. She was probably 16 or so at the time. My dad was sitting on the couch. My mom was sitting on a chair and I sat on the couch kind of across from my mom. And I just kind of waited and looked at them. And my mom, I remember so clearly had her chin on top of like her fist, like on her knuckles Mm -hmm. and said, we want to talk to you about something. And she said, guess what we're getting? A puppy. I wish. I just like, (laughs) I don't know what it was in me that I think like wanted to make a joke out of this like clearly really heavy situation. And just something in my brain made me say a divorce. And she just nodded with a smile on her face. Oh, my God. Did you know what that meant? How, and You were eight, right? I mean, I knew. I think I knew emotionally what it meant because I immediately started crying and was very upset. But I feel like I must have been really upset even about just not being taken care of kind of in that moment and like not being told in a better way. Yeah, like why she made a game out of it almost. I think it was not that she thought it was silly or light, but I think that, you know, my parents were probably the first to get divorced out of many of their friends. And there was no kind of therapy or books on like how to tell your kids you're getting a divorce. Like they were just like 
doing this hard thing and didn't know what to say. Mm. And so it came out in this very awkward, not great way at all. And I was mad. And I remember running away into their bedroom and just sobbing Mm. and just having this like emotional response to it. And I remember my sister was the one that followed me in. And, you know, as a 16 year old, I think had such a different perspective on what was going on and probably had seen so much more than I had. And so with like her response, I remember was like, it's going to be okay, Sarah, it's going to be okay. But, you know, didn't you expect it? You know, this like very jaded kind of like, you know, I'm about to go to college kind of perspective. And I was like, what are you talking about? No, in my in my filming of this in my mind, like you're inside crying and the camera pans out to the lemonade cups that have been knocked over and are spilling like little bits of lemonade onto the ground. I just in my like like that's where the camera floats away up onto the neighborhood. It's so sad. It was really a true and I and I don't mean to be so, so dramatic about it because now of course you know many years later it's like my norm they do but it was a loss of innocence it was a total shock to hear that and it was a total loss of innocence like I I also distinctly remember in the just few days after that you know my dad went back home to Ohio and I was with my mom and I remember I was helping her clean one day and I and I really remember thinking like my my, the, the 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 like cells in my brain were changing to have a different definition of family And like my parents and what was going to happen. And I felt like abandoned, but not and like an orphan. I remember like thinking I was like little orphan Annie. It was the only like analogy I could make in my little eight year old brain, even though both of my parents were very present for the rest of my life, of course. But um, it was just very hard to digest. It doesn't matter whether it's, quote, a good divorce or a bad divorce, because I my parents did not get along and they separated when I was four, but I would classify them as a good divorce because they were basically very responsible. Everybody got to see me. I was handed off responsibly. They all took part in my raising. My mom did the heavy lion's share, but my dad came in for like the weekends and the fun and like they were very good at it. And I've heard a lot that are not bad, but it honestly doesn't matter because that rending of family, whoo. I mean, I agree. And who knows? Voluntarily, too. I mean, obviously, I know, I know the involuntary is much, much worse. But it's almost strange, like choosing to do that to someone's family is a a very strange concept for a young child to understand. Yeah. And I don't know if it would have been just as traumatizing, though, in a very different, like less acute way, if my parents had stayed together for whatever reason, because they clearly weren't happy. And I think that's traumatic too. So I'm not, you know, but it's like, there's no way as a kid to understand now, that separation. At future holidays, did anyone ask you ever again, guess what you're getting? And you just burst into tears. Well, no. <laughs> like what? Like Hanukkah? <laughs> yeah. Eight nights of surprises. <laughs> guess what you're getting on the third night of Hanukkah? No, but Chlamydia. Neither of my parents are really good at talking about a topic head on. Neither of them are really good at being like, I'm going to be the adult Mm. and, you know, confront this really difficult conversation with my daughter who I'm taking care of. Like they just aren't, they don't excel at that. And that's okay. They're just, they're just not those people. So then what happened to your mom? Yes. So anyway, my parents separated. And so this is just like a, a, a mini series of shocks. So my parents separated. They both lived in the same town. But my mom, like, started dating a little bit, which was, you know, a whole other set of discomforts for me mm-hmm. personally. Um, but this one night I remember just a few years later, probably when I was, like, 10 years old, my mom and I were home. She was having some friends over from work. And they were just, you know, having fun and, you know, drinking and having appetizers and whatever, you know, women did. They probably were, like, you know, 45 at the time or something like that, um, which at the time seemed, you know, much older than it is. <laughs> um, 
not and just around the corner for some exactly. of us. And so I remember being upstairs in my bedroom and, you know, you know, just hanging out. And I remember the doorbell ringing and my, we had a, we had our front door had little, a little window on it. And I heard my mom kind of open the foyer door and imagine that she was looking through the window. And she said, and I heard her say from downstairs, it's the police, it's the police. And I was like, why is the police at my house? What's happening? And so she opened the door and I heard the policeman who was the only male. He had this very booming voice. And even already, just a few years later, it felt really different and weird to hear a male voice in my home. Like I remember that like, you know, uncomfortable feeling. And he said, is this Paula Kleinman? Are you Paula Kleinman? And she was like, yes, yes. Were we making too much noise? What was this about? What was this about? <laughs> and he was, I don't know what he said, but the next thing I heard was like loud mu- music playing oh, and all of the ah. women just starting to howl and hoot. <laughs> and my mom, who I don't know what she was thinking. I mean, I see my mom as like kind of prudish, but, um, but I just remember hearing her. I was upstairs and I remember hearing her say, where's Sarah? Where's Sarah? I don't want her to see any of this. Oh, and I just guess what you're so getting? Like... <laughs> a cop with a boner. <laughs> like, oh, it makes a me new dad. A new dad. <laughs> oh, God. So oh that was God. all hooting and hollering and crazy. And so that was very, like, you know, awful for me just, like, imagining what was happening downstairs. So that, I mean, that I would have, like, that would have required years of therapy to untangle for me. Like, which I've had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, me like, yeah. So it gets worse. Oh boy. So that ends, that evening ends and that's, you know, over and the, everybody leaves the cops, fake cop, whatever you want to call him. Stripper. He's the a boner stripper. Patrol. Yeah. God, I hope he didn't put her in handcuffs. That would be awful. <laughs> Paul anyway. Kleinman, you're coming with me. <laughs> oh God. Don't say the word coming. <laughs> So <laughs> <laughs> it's that kind of podcast. And my mom's name is banned by time. Facebook. No, too much placenta on that <laughs> podcast. This podcast contains P for placenta, C for cop, and B for boner. <laughs> oh, I'm regretting telling the story. <laughs> I'd never regret. All right. So, so what was the okay, next mini so earthquake of shock? Just a few days later, maybe a week later, one little story, little vignette that you need to know about is that my dad, apparently the, the one of the sort of like family history stories is that just before my parents separated, my dad thought it would be a good idea to take all of the cupboards off of our kitchen cupboards hmm. to have them. I guess you could like have them repainted by dipping them, I guess is how they yes. do it. They get mm-hmm. dipped. You know this. I didn't know. Anyhow. They separated before the dipping happened and the cupboard doors came back. So for all of my growing up, we just had shelves, <laughs> which seems kind of like cool and like farmy. Right. But like in, a, in the suburbs, it always seemed like this sort of, you know, illustration of like some, the separation. Yeah. It was just like, you could just see our like old Crisco and like stovetop. <laughs> Like it was just there. It wasn't hidden with the cupboard doors. So anyhow, in the kitchen, we also kept on high up shelves, the phone book. And I remember I, which we still use the phone book in those days. What so is a I, phone book? So a phone book. No. <laughs> and I don't remember who I was calling, but I remember having to climb up onto the kitchen counter and reach up into the way high cupboard for the phone book. I don't know why we kept it so high, but we did. So this one day I needed to make a call. I climbed up onto – I was by myself. I was like a latchkey kid. My mom was still at work and I was home. I climbed up, reached up to the shelf where I thought the phone book was Mm -hmm. and I felt this box 
And I didn't know it was like, oh, this is a new thing. I what is this box? And this I pulled is not a phone down. book. It was not a phone book. It was this white box. I pulled the white box down and it was like a box that you open almost like that chocolates would be in. And I opened it up and on a bed of like um, whatever that plastic grass is that comes in like Easter (laughs) baskets. Right. It was like on a bed of this fake plastic Easter basket grass was this huge week old white chocolate penis. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) with just complete with veins. It was the most upsetting, awful thing. I have ever seen as a, I must have been 10. Guess and what just, you're getting? A really <laughs> creepy Easter. <laughs> Why had she not thrown it out? No Where one, thank God, had taken from? a bite out of it. It was from the stripper as oh, a gift. God. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that's what it was. It was like at the going away gift Lady, from the stripper. I can't stay. I've got to ride off into the sunset and take care of a lot of other ladies, but I'm going to leave you with a giant white chocolate dick it was scary looking oh my god so that's very nice of him to leave a gift i guess but my mom i don't know why she didn't throw it out she just hid it because it's bad to throw it you don't want to waste food (laughs) (laughs) somebody might eat it in an apocalypse someday all we've got left is two cans of tuna and a giant white chocolate penis. <laughs> <laughs> Which you can see because our cupboards have no doors on right, them. Right, right. That's right. And I don't know if I should tell this last part. You can, yes, you can you just should. edit this. You know you why? Because we have a podcast called Tell It Anyway. Okay. Tell well, so I feel like I don't even know if this is a denouement. I don't even really know what that word means. A but denouement. I like it. Yeah, okay. But so, you know, fast forward again a few years later. My parents are fully separated. My mom is like, my mom has started to basically date after her like, you know, few years of like playing the field. She started to, she, well, actually she started to decide, she did decide that she wanted to take drum lessons. And someone at work said, Hey, I take the drum. I I play the drums. I'll teach you. So this guy who offered to teach her the drums started coming over for drum lessons and then, slowly but surely, he started doing a drum lesson and then staying for dinner. And then he just came over for dinner. And as I like to say, they never got past the snare. I was going to say something <laughs> much worse. Oh, don't. Please don't. Never you really called mom. her boyfriend to me. It was just like this like drum teacher that was staying over for dinner And then it was like very ambiguous and like no one ever said like, Sarah, this is my boyfriend. So I was at dinner at my dad's house. He dropped me off at home at my mom's. It was like 9.30 or 10 at night. I noticed that Tony, who we also call Little little Drummer Boy, (laughs) his car was in the driveway. And so I didn't want to say to my dad like, huh, that's weird. Tony's car is in the driveway. I didn't expect him to be here. I wonder why that's happening. I just wanted to protect my mom around my dad. So I got dropped off, said goodbye to my dad, came into my home. Mm. All the lights were off. So in the kitchen is the first place you walk into. And like we had a dog at that time. And once like everybody goes to bed, the dog is like penned into the kitchen. So the dog was penned into the kitchen, Sadie. She was in the kitchen. And I like go into the house further and further. Okay, the kitchen lights are off. Sadie's in the kitchen. And then I go into the dining room. Lights are off. And then I walk further into the living room. One light is on. And like the most unattractive image is lying out before me, which is 
two pairs of tennis shoes and an open bottle of Bailey's Irish cream. (laughs) Which still like, just like makes me have shivers to this day. And then like, I immediately knew like they were upstairs. How old were you at this point? Probably 15. Okay. So you were aware of what might be transpiring. For sure. I was aware and like upset by it and like just felt like a stranger in my own home and felt like I needed to be Mm. quiet. And so what I ended up doing was going to the basement, thinking about it for a while outside, sitting on our deck, peeing outside. I felt like even like my peeing would like wake them up. Right. So I just opened there. Yeah. So I grabbed a blanket and ended up sleeping in my mom's car in the driveway. (laughs) And I remember in the morning, my mom opening the back door of the car. I see her opening the back door of the car. I look up and I see her face that already has makeup on it. And like she's kind of her hair is wet from the shower. So my first thought is like she's been up for a while and not known that I was here. Like been up long enough to take a shower and put on makeup. And I hear Tony's car just peeling out of the driveway. And I just burn past my mom like going upstairs going to my bed. I just like, you know, I didn't sleep well. I was tired. I was mad. I was like, you know, confused. And my mom kind of marches upstairs after me. And it's funny. It's the same look she gave me Mm. with telling me my parents were getting divorced. She sits on the edge of my bed and she says, Sarah, sit up. So I sat up and she had the same look on her face that just looked at me, you know, chin on her knuckles and just said, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. Oh, man. (laughs) It was just like this opportunity for her to like have a conversation with me. And she just was defending herself. And we've never talked about it since. Yeah. It's that is not an easy thing. My mom was a single mom and she was always like super careful about what I knew and what was happening. You know, like I, I but yet still like any male presence in the house that because we were a family of two women. I was a girl. She was a woman. And like that was the dynamic that I grew up totally. in after age four. And Same, anything right. that shifted that dynamic was hostile and other. And I never really recovered from it. So I totally know where you're coming from. Yeah. Uh, my mom dated a butcher from Key Foods and, and encouraged him to become a gourmet chef, which he did. Um, and that was like the, but like Phil, Phil was always at the house. He was a sweetheart. He was a lovely guy. And yet mm. still it was just this sense of like, there's an alien in my house because all I knew was mom is just mom. It was the same thing for me where like my mom was my best friend. It was just the two of us. It was just like a girl's house. And then, but I think that I could have been okay with Tony being there had there not been so much like shame around it. Right, right. And like here, introducing me, like being the adult. And you know, the funny thing is they are still together. They will be together forever, I'm sure. Oh, is your mom still with Tony, the drum teacher? And they're in a band where Tony, Tony is the drummer. My mom plays percussion, which means cymbals and maracas. That is awesome. They are, they make each other so happy. They make each other laugh. That's all that matters. Do they sing that song? That song that's, I don't want to work. I just want to bang on your mom all day. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm going to hell. I'm going to hell. You had this wonderful, emotional, traumatic moment, and I just made a horrible joke out of it. And I've been married to Matt Flanagan too long. I don't mind the joke. I just, my mom will never listen to this. Ah, yeah. (laughs) I've just ensured that you'll never post it on Facebook. But just in case she ever listens to this, I just want to state for the record that I, the only thing I ever would want for my mom and my dad, but my mom in this story, is to be happy and to be with somebody who made 
makes her happy and yes. who makes her laugh and who is good to her. And that is what he is. And that's all that matters. The road to that is never easy, especially if you have kids. And so moms and dads that separate and go on and try to have a life, man, they deserve a lot of credit. So Paul Kleinman, you rock. Literally. I hope the old kids yep. have tons of what she calls gigs that are successful. Yeah, that's awesome. And is called. Uh, and uh, guess what you're getting? Oh, a really what? awkward conversation after this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Hello, mom. Uh, we should probably talk. We should talk. <laughs> Never. Never. <laughs> Well, that's just about going to do it for this episode of Tell It Anyway. Sorry for all the talk about fluids and moms and things you find in the office. We try to mimic as much as possible how people talk when there's not microphones around. And, well, I for one think we succeeded this week. Uh, Anyway, write us with your outrage or your whatever you've got. Drop us a line at tellitanyway at gmail.com or tweet at us at tellitany. Uh, and let us know what you think 